You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Oak Orchard Creek, near Lewiston, New York. It's one of the biggest harbors in Lake Ontario. It can be a 1,000 feet wide in some spots. So the name of Crick, I've even seen in the local, some of the local newspapers. I'm not even sure why it's called a creek. Like it really should be a river. But it's here in 1827 where a man's body is pulled out of the water. And who he was, or rather who people thought he was, would change American politics and actually would change it forever. It all starts like you're flipping through pages of a textbook and there you come on the 1832 presidential election. What is this? You have one state, Vermont, colored green, and it's like, this is the anti-Masonic party. They received seven votes. First of all, Vermont had seven votes. Yeah, it actually had more electoral votes than uh, twice as many as it does now. It's just this one little blip in this one election in this one state, and the party doesn't report it a presidential election after. It's always been a kind of a weird, like with the Masons, there, there's a Masonic Lodge in my town. Why would anybody, why would anyone who has start a political party around that? So let's take ourselves back. We're going to talk about 1827. So when this body's pulled out of the lake in our national political picture, John Quincy Adams is president. You don't really have parties. See, James Monroe becomes president, and John Quincy Adams is a secretary of state, and it's kind of the era of good feelings. Almost everyone is a Republican. You know, now some people feel that some of the Federalists just kind of disguise themselves as Republicans and the like, but everyone's sort of in the same party, but they're not all in the same factions. And things split up as soon as James Monroe leaves office. And you have this bitter fight between Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. I mean, really, there's several candidates in that election. There's also Crawford and there's also Henry Clay. But in the House of Representatives with Henry Clay, very influential there, John Quincy Adams is decided as president. Henry Clay becomes his secretary of state. That gets ugly. The Jackson people feel a deal is made. They are saying a lot of stuff about a secret deal, about a cabal, about uh, Clay manipulating John Quincy Adams and all of the like. So this John Quincy Adams-Clay administration, which is the way a lot of people would have seen it at the time, keeps their hero, the military hero of the Battle of New Orleans, out and his supporters don't like it. They start building organizations everywhere. While John Quincy Adams is in the White House, he wasn't elected in a popular vote. He does win more states than anybody else. 
You know, say what you will about JQA. He also wins the state of New York, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Because by the time you're getting to 1827, particularly in that pivotal state, momentum for Adams, the current president, is waning. Momentum for Jacksonians is increasing. Martin Van Buren, a powerful figure in Albany, is working on a coalition with a person that he'd been opposed to a lot, DeWitt Clinton. So between Albany and the New York City kind of machines at this time, they are working to make this state for Jackson in 1828. Jackson's about populism. And these are people, the Jacksonians, who spend a lot of ink and a lot of breath calling their opponents elitists, accusing them of a secret political deal in a back room, trying to subvert the popular will. And for a lot of the opponents... People who like the job that John Quincy Adams is doing as president want to see him in there again. These are phony issues. This is fake politics. This is, this is demagoguery. But there's a problem. Jackson's exciting. John Quincy Adams, not as much. So back to that creek. The body that is found is decomposed. And I know this is going to start to sound a little bit like a true crime podcast or something like that. And I promise you that it will not be. But it does have some of those elements around a crime that occurred and at the, and the people's reaction to it at the time being the same as some things that go on today. But more than few suspect that this body was of a man who had gone missing a year ago. The body, they said, was that of William Morgan, a bricklayer recently settled in the area who got involved with the wrong people and was the victim of a horrible crime, they thought. They get Morgan's wife. Is this your husband? Yes, she says it is. They get Morgan's dentist. Yes, that's his teeth, the dentist said. Not everybody agreed, though, and the local coroner did not agree. Morgan had come to New York State from Virginia seeking work. He was a bricklayer, probably about seven or five years before. No one was quite sure. And as a stonemason, he joined the order associated with that ancient profession that he had the Masons, and his village had a local lodge, and he joined. No problem. The Masons go back quite far. It's the oldest fraternal organization in the world. Starts in the Middle Ages as a guild of those who could work with stone. That's a pretty big profession because that means they could build cathedrals, which were the most important thing. Now, it, it expands beyond this into more of a social organization, a fraternal organization. And it's something else. Its rites and rituals are secret. Now, the lodges are known, but the rites and rituals are are not something spread among the public, especially at this time in 1827. And there's certain degrees that people could earn, and there's masters of lodges and hierarchy and things like that. And people don't talk about what's going on in the meetings. George Washington is head of an Alexandria Lodge. So was Paul Revere. So was John Hancock. So was Ben Franklin. There are many people are involved in the current politics at the time we're talking about. Henry Clay is a Grand Mason in Lexington, Kentucky. And so is the upcoming candidate for the presidency. We might say the front runner, gunning for a comeback, Andrew Jackson. It's no small organization. In the United States, there are 21,000 members and over 500 lodges at the time we're talking about. As one mason said, the order was fraternal to us. It was peaceful, a mark of civilization. 
It included powerful and ranked men, wealthy and talented too. The secret meetings bothered some. Others described it as harmless, nothing more than an esoteric fraternity. As one Mason would say, prior to the events that were about to go on, opponents of Masonry, if they existed, were so quiet, a defense was never needed. Indeed, tolerance, respect, approval was what they generally faced as they grew. And this was a growing organization. But William Morgan, this bricklayer, decides to move to a different town. He moves to Batavia. And there, the order is perhaps a little more snobbish. They simply would not admit him. He was not of good standing. He did not have a steady job. Morgan is incensed. And he seeks out a local printer, David Miller, who also has a problem with Masons. Why? Because his the rival newspapers in his area are owned by people that belong to the Batavia Mason Lodge. And they together work to have an expose printed that is going to detail all the Masonic rituals and what they're doing in the meetings and cast them in a negative light. Now, here's the other thing. And this paints this whole end of the story. When you do one of these exposés at this time, and really this goes back even to the colonial era, right? You know, you do these pamphlets partially to make money. They sell and it brings money back to the author and the printer if it's successful. They thought this would be something that would be good. The book is released and it's popular and it travels outside of the New York area and reaches an audience nationally. And it doesn't make Masons look good. The local Masons are angered. And a group of them try to burn down Miller's printing house. They try several times. They harass Morgan. He's jailed once on charges that seem trumped up, but he's released. And then a second time, a sheriff sympathetic to the Masons in the area arrests him on debt charges. But one night, someone who's known to him but not a friend pays the debt, and he's released. He gets into a carriage. Amazingly, this debt paid, and he's taken from the jail. He's not And that is the last time his absolute whereabouts are known. Well, the story, you might say, went viral. Maybe viral in the local areas. People talked about this as committees formed to determine what happened to Morgan. He was certainly more well-known after his disappearance than he was before. Townspeople would go to their local meetings and speak about this politicians in the area started noticing. It's all the people wanted to talk about. DeWitt Clinton, the governor of New York, who himself is a Mason, orders that this matter be investigated. A vigilante group traces Mason's carriage ride, and they find eyewitnesses all the way from Batavia to Fort Niagara. They can't determine what happened after that. Was he released? The Indians in Canada, some found dumped in the water, killed, drowned, or was he just sent off on his way, told not to return to this country? The west of New York State was alive with activity. See, Morgan, though, is not the only uh, issue here. There had been other allegations of interference with the laws of, of connections that were too tight between law enforcement and Masons, between politicians and Masons, of times when maybe juries were interfered with. There would be a series of court cases that would occur at the same time as this Morgan Fury that would look into and actually have allegations. There would be about 40 to 50 grand jury investigations. 
enter into this bubbling movement, the new newspaper publisher, Thurlow Weed. He's just bought a newspaper in 1827, and he's just turned it from a weekly to one that's published several times a week. And he needs to build that audience. His evening telegraph is anti-Van Buren. He supported the Erie Canal. His town of Rochester was made a boom town by that canal. He's all for internal developments. He was a supporter of DeWitt Clinton and that faction of New York politics. He's smart and political, Thurlow Weed is. And when he starts hearing about this Morgan thing, he's not immediately buying the controversy. Morgan himself had actually spoken to Weed and appealed to him to publish his book. And Weed said, absolutely not. But journalistic instincts being what they are, he visits Morgan's area. He visits Lewiston. He visits this creek. And either he became convinced or he became convinced that politics what they are. He had to be convinced that Morgan was kidnapped and murdered. This is what he does. He, he calls for the Masonic lodges in the area to speak out about what they know about this case. He calls for that in his newspaper. When they do not, he takes that as evidence that something's going on. His headlines are blaring. Here's what Thurlow Weed writes. The abduction, imprisonment, and murder of a citizen by an association of men sufficiently numerous and influential to hold over tribunals of justice at bay naturally awakened a public investigation. The offenses were found to have been committed by Freemasons for the presentation of their order. Further investigation established the fearful fact that the laws were too feeble to vindicate themselves against Masonic aggression. Still further inquiry proved that the executive, legislative, judicial, and municipal departments of the government were then in the hands of Freemason and under the influence of their institution. The Masonic institution, when truly presented to the understandings of men, will be found to be barren, and bald of all the virtues and wisdom with which it has been invested by fable and tradition. This, along with some details we do know, the harassment of Morgan, the known harassment of his printing partner, the disappearance in the carriage from the local jail, you know, and you've got something here. But there's something more to this. And that's that DeWitt Clinton, as we mentioned, and Van Buren and Jackson are seeking to win New York in 1828. Weed will have no influence, no political power if they do so, if they win New York in, in 1828. And all three of them are Masons. This popular issue of anti-Masonry was powerful enough to give a pretty boring roads and canals party associated with the sitting president who wasn't getting a lot of momentum an angle they needed, something the Jacksonian had, a popular flair. He goes down to Washington Weed, and he meets with other politicians. He'll start a new publication, the Anti-Masonic Inquirer. Here's from one of the articles. The abduction, imprisonment, and murder of a citizen by an association of men sufficiently numerous and influential to hold our tribunals of justice at bay, naturally awakened a public investigation. The offenses were found to have been committed by Freemasons for the protection of their order. Further investigation established the fearful fact that the laws were too feeble to vindicate themselves against Masonic aggression. Still further inquiry proved that the executive, legislative, judicial, and municipal departments of the government were then in the hands of Freemasons and under the influence of their institution. 
These startling disclosures provoked a searching investigation into the principles, tendency, and aims of the Masonic institution. They were soon unfolded and found to be utterly inconsistent with private rights and fraught with manifold dangers to the public welfare. In view of these evils threatening destruction to their dearest rights and most precious possessions, the people entered upon a course of action worthy of a country won by valorous sires and inherited by patriotic sons. Thurloweed continues, the entire overthrow of Freemasonry was firmly resolved on. The conflict commenced under circumstances of peculiar and poignant embarrassment. The people, before entering the arena, had to carry up and sacrifice on the altar of the public good their private friendships, their social ties, and their political attachments. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. More than that, in 1827, Thurlow Weed helps field candidates, eight specifically anti-Mason candidates who are attacking Democrats who are have democracy in their name but do not believe in democratic ideals. And it's a success. They outpoll the regular National Republican candidates that are running. One candidate that particularly notices this is a person that knew Thurlow Weed vaguely, had met him. But when he had the chance to run an anti-Masonic banner, William Seward decided he'd stick to the regular National Republican Roads and Canal anti-Jackson party. Not get involved with that crazy anti-Masonic Masonic stuff and not offend anybody. He's defeated. And had he secured the votes of the anti-Masons in that 1827 election, he would have won. He's convinced. He and Thurlow Weed form a bond. Now, this isn't so perfect, the national politics here, by the way, and adjustments have to be made to turn what is essentially this populist uprising with meetings overflowing at various village meetings in New York State and lots of newspaper articles and pamphlets. Doesn't exactly fit with the Adams administration. After all, Henry Clay 
himself was a Grandmaster Mason. And one of Adam's supporters who was attacked by Anton Masons called it the demon of anti-Masonry. They were opening up. It should have not been unleashed as he saw anyone who was in any position of power as a crass, vain politician of no good. But it was hard to resist because for those in this movement, it was a second independence movement. And it really went beyond just these clubs, but against any kind of a limiting of pure democracy, of freedom of speech, of people making arrangements in secret. It seemed to mimic what they were seeing in American politics in other places. And since the Jacksonians were out there saying it was going on, so could the anti-Masons. When one of his party's editors criticized protesters in 1827, those who were going to the various village meeting, Van Buren said, let the Morgan Fair alone. He was heartsick at such reckless indiscretion running in the face of so irresistible a current of public feeling in the Western counties. Opposition and ridicule Van Buren said will just add fuel to the flames. Here's what Robert Formasano says in an American quarterly article. The origins of anti-Masonry cannot be explained as an irrational outburst. The protests of 1826 to 1827 is an exemplary case study of the gestation of a movement whose beliefs spring initially from concrete experience, while anti-Masonry eventually ran into excesses and recruited opportunists, fanatics, and diverse exotics. One must not read later factions into the initial protests. A Batavia meeting of anti-Masons to hear about the Morgan case was well attended, and they said the assertion of our rights is but a miserable mockery if the humblest citizen can under the pretended sanction of legal authority be violently abducted from all his friends. They complained about a bandadi and an organized mob that used lodge rooms to incarcerate citizens. And that's one way the meetings went. A meeting in Rochester was more moderate, condemning the villainy that occurred against Morgan, but being clear that this didn't apply to all Masons. And you see that in a lot of the anti-Mason work. There is some uh, attempt, depends on the person. Sometimes they're a little moderate. Sometimes they'll try to reach out and say, we're not talking about everyone. Or at the minimum say, well, these are people who got caught up in something. They're not all to blame. One anti-Mason newspaper even takes aim at George Washington. Now, very few are going to actually insult George Washington, but uh, very often to attack him, you're going to say he's kind of mistaken. So this is what they say about Washington and his Masonic heritage. In his reply to the polite address of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, 1792, George Washington says, the grand object of Masonry is to promote the happiness of the human race. Either General Washington mistook the grand object of Masonry, or Masonry takes a mysterious way for its attainment. That an institution whose grand object is to promote the happiness of the human race should strictly forbid its members to invite their most intimate friends to unite with the institution in the attainment of that grand object is a mystery inexplicable upon the common principles of philosophy. Perhaps George Washington supposed it is the grand object of Freemasonry to promote the happiness of the human race by the practice of benevolence. It is certain that by far the greatest part of the fraternity with whom we converse believe this and do not conceive that any essential change would be made in the aim of Freemasonry by striking off all of its degrees and mummery at a blow. Sometimes they're confident the charitable purposes of the institution will hardly allow them to repress their indignation and an effort to show the entire falsity of the, its claims. 
They stretch forth their hands with ardor, while their countenance flushes with honest zeal. Well, you know, mummery aside. <laughs> um, yeah, you see there are more an acknowledgement that there might be some moderation on the issue. They're still attacking the overall institution. Masonry fought back. They see what's coming here, and they say these anti-Masons were overstating the case. They're being opportunistic, seeing that they can advance themselves in popularity. It's less against Morgan or any known conspiracy. They really don't have any real information. Thurlow Weed describes a public reaction against Masonry in various New York newspapers that occur in the next few years, planting rumors about anti-Masons, which Thurlow Weed was said to decide designed to cause confusion. They talk about those exemplary citizens who are Masons, Washington, Hancock, Paul Revere. In 1964, Richard Hofstetter wrote The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And it's an important work. It's kind of a classic in in political science, one that's really reached almost like pop political science levels. People know it. And it was written, of course, around the time of the Goldwater takeover of the Republican Party. There have been conspiracy theories throughout American politics. And this is a point Hofstetter makes. And it's really clear that they are fermented by those who will benefit from their political gain. American politics has often been an arena for angry minds. In recent years, we have seen angry minds at work, mainly among extreme right-wingers who have now demonstrated in the Goldwater movement how much political leverage can be got out of the animosities and passions of a small minority. Behind this, I believe there's a style of mind that is far from new and not necessarily right-wing at all. I call it the paranoid style simply because no other word adequately invokes the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy that I have in mind. He gives examples in history of other times when there's been these type of conspiracies entering politics. Here's a manifesto by... Leaders of the Populist Party in 1895. As early as 1865 to 66, a conspiracy was entered into between the gold gamblers of Europe and America. For nearly 30 years, these conspirators have kept the people quarreling over less important matters, while they have pursued with unrelenting zeal their one central purpose. Every device of treachery, every resource of statecraft, and every little artifice known to the secret cabals of the international gold ring are being used to deal a blow to the prosperity of the people and the financial and commercial independence of the country. That's 1895. In 1855, this in a Texas newspaper. It's a notorious fact that the monarchs of Europe and the Pope of Rome are at this very moment plotting our destruction and threatening the extinction of our political, civil, and religious institutions. And it goes on to accuse the Pope of having a, sending a secret diplomatic mission over here, of insulting senators, of spending 200000 from a special fund, a lot of money in 1855. So Hofstetter sees these examples as times when conspiracy theory was used. And in his uh, writing, he does get to the anti-Masons. And it's interesting to note how he describes them. He noted in the anti-Masonic rhetoric 
apocalyptic, an absolutist framework in which the hostility is expressed. Anti-Masons didn't just say, secret societies are a bad idea. The author of the standard exposition of anti-Masonry described them to be the most dangerous institution ever imposed on man. It may be said to be hell's masterpiece, so an anti-Mason writer said of the Mason Club. Here's another point he makes, Hofstadter. If for every act of incompetence, one can substitute an act of treason, many points of fascinating interpretation are open to the paranoid imagination. The paranoid is trafficking in life and death, and always manning the barricades of civilization. Yeah, I mean, amped up people not tolerating nuances. There always could be a conspiracy. Anti-Masons were right that a secret society of influential men bound by obligations could pose a threat. In the limited sense of the western part of the state of New York in the 1820s, there's some evidence, some evidence, that um, they had an influence in local politics, and certainly that members... As a New York prosecutor said in one of the trials that would happen in Morgan's cases, none of them successful, the idea of a secret society created an impression, a mistaken impression among people that they could get away with anything that they wanted. But again, back to the lake. Thurlow Weed, up and coming, puts everything into this Morgan case in his newspaper. Big headlines. The Masons and their supporters strike back saying, you know, perhaps it's Thurlow Weed who put this body in the lake. It's preposterous, but it's effective. You give us a conspiracy, we're going to give you a conspiracy back. And and something else happens. Miller, the printer that Morgan had worked with, does publish this book, and it sells for a dollar a copy, and he makes a fortune on it. He does not claim that Morgan had been murdered, but he said that he had been carried away. Now, something happens at the Orchard Creek. And that is that the body is identified, and it's not Daniel Morgan. It's another person. The wife of a missing Canadian, Timothy Monroe, positively identified the clothing on the body as that which had been worn by her husband at the time that he disappeared. Um, there's reports of you know, people seeing Morgan all around the country and in other countries. There's a report that he's a pirate in the Canary Islands, and then he was hanged. The Freemasons say he was never killed. He was He's walking around somewhere. Then you have all of these stories. Um, Thurlow Weed gets to the point where perhaps he believes it now that the wife has testified in this manner, that that body is not Morgan, but that Morgan is still disappearing. Now, he has an encounter with a group of people who are accused of being involved in the crime. And there will be a trial for those people who assisted. And then the sheriff who arrested Morgan will be removed from office. Speaking to the council for several of the accused Mason that Thurlow Weed claims, well, Weed, what are you going to do for a Morgan now after the body is pulled from the creek? What pro-Mason newspapers report is that Weed says, this is a good enough Morgan until after the election. And what Weed says he really said was, no, as I was closing the door, I replied to their council, When he asked me, well, Weed, what are you going to do for a Morgan now? I said, that is a good enough Morgan until you bring me back the one you carried away. This remark was reproduced in the Rochester Daily Advertiser with an apparently slight but most important variation. 
turns the issue from Thurlow Weed being the accuser to Thurlow Weed being the accused of making up the whole story. But he would answer those charges for the rest of his political life. For a group of conspiracy theorists, there's a lot of contributions that they make to American politics and history. And the first is in the names of some of the people. William Seward, Thurlow Weed himself, Thaddeus Stevens, and they're the background of Lincoln's politics. Lincoln's not an anti-Masonry, but the people that he's working with either directly or sometimes in coalition or sometimes just to get a few bills passed had their roots in this anti-Masonic movement. John Quincy Adams loses the presidency in 1828 and is consoled two years later when he runs for Congress on an anti-Masonic ticket. And he wins. My election as president, he said, is not half as gratifying as the election to Congress. He disliked political parties like his father. And when he went to an anti-Masonic meeting, he, from a well-known family, said, not an aristocrat in sight. It was the type of politics he wanted to see. Here's what Sean Wilentz says in his book, The Rise of American Democracy from Jefferson to Lincoln. More broadly, in terms fitted to the rapidly commercializing Northeast, anti-Masonry revamped moralistic and egalitarian themes that had once been the mainstays of the old country democracy. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Exactly 50 years after America had declared its independence of the British monarchy, a coincidence lost on nobody, new forms of privilege and exclusiveness now seemed to threaten the land. Insidiously, that threat had wormed its way to the very heart of the commercializing countryside. Masonry may have once included great men such as Washington and Franklin, but that legacy had been corrupted by a new class of power-hungry, virtualist men. Even if a little misguided at times, I think is Wilentz's point, there was a movement standing up for democracy. So you have this 1832 election, the one 
moment where there was actually electoral votes cast for this party. The candidate of the anti-Masonic party is William Wirt. And um, they have a unique system that Weed and others are involved in, and that is a convention. And so it ends up being the anti-Masons that change American politics by having the first anti-Masonic, by having the first political convention to select a presidential candidate. They really go through a lot of different people before they get to William Wirt, who is the attorney general during the Monroe administration. Some of the anti-Masons, they have different choices. They want to pick Henry Clay. He's probably the best choice to oppose Andrew Jackson in 1832. He is going to be the nominee for the Whig party, but there's a problem. Clay's a Mason. They try to get him to renounce Masonry. He won't do it. They try to get him to pass a bill banning secret societies. He won't do that. But William Wirt, he appears to not want the nomination, but he can't say no. In my case, I thought I had no right to object to the anti-Masons proposing me to the consideration of the people for the office of president. He even says, and this is before the election, they cannot carry a single state except perhaps Vermont. And that turns out to be very true. Wirt, it turns out, was a former Freemason. He had taken the first two degrees of Freemasonry in Richmond, Virginia. He said in his speech, to the nom- um, in his letter accepting the nomination, he found Freemasonry unobjectable, and that in his experience, Masons were intelligent men of high and honorable character. Every other chance of uniting the opposition had vanished. This alone remained, and faint as it was, I considered it my duty to permit the offer to be made. William Wirt goes on, does any man consent to be run for an office for which he knows at the time there is no possible chance for his election, and that even the attempt will become ridiculous? What more is the acceptance of a nomination than a consent to be proposed to the consideration of the people for an office, on the calculation that the party may be approved in his election carried? In any case, when he's asked to do it again in 1836, Wirt refuses. At least 15 presidents, five Supreme Court chief justices, and numerous members of Congress have been Masons. Presidents known to be Masons include Washington, Monroe, Jackson, Polk, Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, James Garfield, William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Warren Harding, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and Gerald Ford. This from an article in the Saturday Evening Post, The Conspiracy Theory That Spawned a Political Party. Popular movement against Masons is long over, but in the age of social media, one in which virtually any conspiracy can take root, anti-Mason rhetoric is still out there. The charges leveled against Masons indiscriminately by internet users are much more complicated than those of Western New York a few centuries ago. Conspiracy theorists on social media have woven anti-Masonic theories into the lore of QAnon, along with many other theories regarding a cabal of satanic cannibalistic pedophiles and the Trump administration's heroic crusade against them. Such posts might call attention to Masonic-seeming symbols in photographs of the British royal family, or the logos of Gmail, or government seals. Despite this lack of presidential influence, the anti-Masonic party had a good run for a few years in some areas. They became the dominant anti-Jackson movement in a lot of the North, until Whig machinery could take some of it over. They are a part of the system that this Republican party is built on, when you get to the 1850s. Thurlow Weed's career sees him in 
kind of a kingmaker in New York. He's the force behind Seward, who very nearly won the nomination in 1860, would have made Lincoln at best a vice president. Weed and his trainloads of supporters tried but couldn't. Today, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of accusations, voter fraud, pizza parlors. They share something. The lack of moderation, lack of flexibility, as Hofstetter says, a person acting like they're guarding the gates of civilization in their mind, which is an interesting way to phrase it, right? Because we often think of conspiracy theorists as crazies with no logic, right? But for Hofstetter, it's exactly the reverse. There are people who are so amped up. It takes politics out of politics and into something else, something non-political, because politics involves some discussion. It must involve some give and take and conversation even compromise, in order to gain political volume, to gain force, conspiracy theories take this away. It was a useful vehicle for some really good things that came out of it. It's also interesting that out of it, political forces, changes, personalities, and a new institution, the political convention, were born. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We have a Patreon if you want to support us. Probably have a few leftovers from this one. I didn't get a chance to talk about Amos Ellamaker, the VP candidate for the Anti-Masonic Party. I don't know how much we'll be able to say. And uh, I want to thank you for listening.